Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July 24th, 2018. This is episode 2000. 256 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got what I think is going to be one of the all-time favorite shows for you today. Um, and I think the title will maybe make people pause for a second and go, really, what, huh? Um, I'm titling today's show, That Which You Can Change. Uh, yesterday I was gone. I was out fishing with some really great friends, my buddy Patrick, my other buddy Thad. Uh, we had a blast. We caught a bunch of fish and uh, just had a good time. You know, guys together getting out on the lake. Awesome dude, Omar Cotter. Uh, and I left you with a show on business. And I, uh, I gave you guys a, a pretty big new piece of content. I think it was about 15 minutes of introductory content to that Rewind episode that focused on the aspects of business. And when I talked about that on Sunday, which is when I actually recorded that Rewind for you, it got me thinking on, on, on a deeper level about the concept that I've talked about since almost the beginning of the show called lifestyle design and designing life. And I, I kind of been playing around with that in my head for a while, and I'm like, I kind of want to do more with that, but I don't want to just rehash the stuff that I've already done. And, you know, when you get up over 2,000 episodes, it's you've done a lot. So it's, it's hard not to just rehash things. So I wanted to come at this from a, a new standpoint. And one of the things that I, I, I noticed recently, this was somewhere, and I saw an example of what's known as the serenity prayer. Um, now, actually, most people that are familiar with the serenity prayer, and they know the the 12-step you know, recovery version of the prayer is shortened down, don't know that it was originally put together uh, by an American theologian uh, named Reinhold Nibbler who uh, was with us from 1892 all the way up to 1971. He checked out a year before I was born. And there's a long version of that prayer that's much more a typical thing that you would hear, uh, you would think of like from a church or something like that. But the short version of this is, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And even those that don't believe in God, don't believe in a higher power, would say they're completely unreligious, might even be atheists, seem to accept the wisdom of that thing, that, that, that saying. And you can actually boil it down to a single sentence. Accept what you, can, you can't change and change what you can. And I, I think that's something that's so universal. Uh, it's, it's why you see this thing on coffee mugs calendars, necklaces, etc. Because it's so easy for people to understand and it's so easy for people to understand that it's valid. Like It doesn't make sense to sit around worrying about things you cannot affect. And it certainly doesn't make sense to, to do that at the expense of not changing the things that are negative in your life that you can change. doesn't make any sense at all. This actually led to, at least as far as I can tell by reading his work, Stephen Covey's famous, you know, circle of influence versus your circle of concern. It is, it's the same, and even if it didn't lead to it, it's the same thinking. 
I was I was talking with with uh, with Patrick and Thad yesterday on the drive home, and we were well. Patrick was sleeping, but I was talking with Thad on the drive home. He had to stay awake because he was driving, and I figured I should stay away and talk awake and talk to him so he didn't fall asleep while he's driving, right? Because we got we rolled out at like four o'clock in the morning, and uh, so I was talking to him, and we were talking about how different people have claimed like that they invented certain things, and that a lot of things were actually invented at the same time by two people in different parts of the world, and they didn't even... It looked like one was ripping the other one off, which hold on for today's song of the day with how that can be backwards. Um, and the reality is both of them invented it independently. And we actually covered that in the history segment as well, that, that, that that's happened as well. So this, when you have a universal concept, a lot of times it will surface into humanity at the same time from multiple sources. And I think this this concept is one of those things. And it's also an eternal concept. I think that probably people have intrinsically known this, though it's easy to ignore for a long time. And with that in mind, I put together today's show, and I wanted to talk to you about why lifestyle design isn't boring and tedious, I think, as most people think that it is. And the 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 horror, actually, of the alternative what it means if you don't design your life. Um, but I also came at it from the standpoint of this, this thing known as the serenity prayer or the simple philosophy of accepting what you can't change and changing what you can and realize something really important. Most people fail to identify that which can be changed. And there's a kind of a pitfall there. And in just a moment, we'll dig into that. And I'll talk about all of these things with you today. And I, and I hope it will lead you to make some good decisions in your life about improving eight areas of health um, that I think we kind of ignore day-to-day -day most of the time. We don't pay attention to these areas of health. And one of them is physical. And I think we at least play lip service to that. But there's a lot of other areas in our life where you know the old saying, well, at least you have your health. A lot of times people that say that, maybe they physically are reasonably healthy, but if these other seven areas are impacted in a negative way, you don't have your health in total. So I think this will be an interesting show. I think it's the kind of show a lot of you guys really like the best out of all the shows that I do, and we'll get to it in just a moment. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is RidgeWallet.com. I love Ridge Wallet. I love the Ridge Wallet wallet, man. It's just it's awesome. Uh, I, I never really thought about the dangers of having, you know, identity theft occur to like my, my credit card numbers of something because I'm always careful about what I'm using to make sure I'm not using a device with a skimmer or something like that. And it never even really occurred to me, you know, that people could be out there like using an RFID wand to like just wand your butt basically as you walk by, and next thing you know, they have all your credit card numbers and information. And when I thought, you know, I can just put this in this little metal, you know, metal wallet. And then make that all go away, that, that would be really great. And then when I got a hold of the wallet, I really became impressed with how minimizing that which I'm carrying around, which for a guy that's big on EDC and stuff sounds weird, but you know when you do have an everyday carry that you, you take around with you, anything you do to lighten that up and minimize your life and make it easier is great. Ridge Wallet is a really great way to do that. They have some other great products. their phone cases, uh, backup battery systems, their day packs. Check them out today at RidgeWallet.com or remember... MSB members, you get a discount to RidgeWallet.com. Log into your MSB to uh, get that discount before you make your order, or you're going to not get your discount. Next up today, JM Bullion. You know, I, I, I look at precious metals as something that everybody should have some portion of in their life. 
And I'm a big believer in about 5% to 10% of your net wealth invested over time into precious metals. And there's, a, there's a, a bunch of reasons why, but I think my most compelling reason is there's a certain percentage of my wealth that will go to my heirs that is nobody's business but mine and theirs. And that's what the silver and gold to me are really. They are the most anonymous forms of wealth you can own. This is a saying we have down here in Texas. This is between me, you, and the fence post. And that means as long as we don't talk about it to anybody else, don't no one else know. That's one of the real advantages of silver and gold as your wealth assurance program. You have wealth that you can hand down to your heirs. I also use it a lot in trying to teach, you know, when my son was younger, my son, now my grandkids, my nieces and nephews, about the concept of long-term wealth. Uh, by investing in them, I give them silver. In you know, when everybody else is giving them plastic crap, I give them silver. And when I first started doing it, some of the family members were like, oh, you know, let the kid be a kid, let them have a toy or whatever. You know, well, you guys do that. The kids have way more toys than they need. But like what I've done is each of them, I've gotten them little treasure chests, little wooden chests, and to keep their silver and anything they find valuable in. When I give it to them, they put that in there. It's funny, but you know, over time. Uh, I think the kids actually get a lot out of that, and they get really excited about it. It's kind of cool. JM Bullion will let you buy all of the cool silver and gold that you want at a price that's better than most other places. In fact, better than the two biggest ones I know of are uh, Atmex and Monex, and they have better pricing than both with free shipping. And as I always say, I care that my sponsors care about you and that I can fix things if something goes wrong. I have the president's personal email address and phone number, I haven't had to use it much, but when I've needed it, it was there. And he always thanked me for helping point out any kind of problem with customer service. Uh, they are a valued partner with the best price. That's, that's hard to beat. Check them out today for your silver and gold stacking needs at jambullion.com. And who gets you a discount on silver and gold? No one does except me. That's right. MSB members, you guys get a discount on your purchases of silver and gold from jambullion.com. Again, benefits section of the MSB. All right, so kind of let, let's dig into this. Um, let me identify what I see as the problem with with not focusing on the things that you can change enough and, and where it comes from. Uh, I think that people start thinking about it this way. If I stop worrying about or focusing on the things that I, I can't change, then the only thing that I'll have left to focus on is the things that I can influence and I can change. So by simply really focusing on the first part, like this crap on TV is pointless, and therefore me being upset about it only saps my energy, my time, my attention, I need to turn it off and go do something else. And then I will go out and do good things and be fruitful and multiply and things like that. The, the problem with that philosophy, it's going to sound weird at first, the problem with that philosophy is it works. It works, and because it works, you become convinced it works, so you do more of it. So the problem with doing more of something you think works is if you think it works optimally, and it only works a little bit. Because just because you're not spending your time and energy on things that you can't influence or control doesn't mean that the time you're spending is actually as productive as it needs to be for the things that you want in your life. It doesn't really work that way. Now, you will actually spend more time and energy doing those things when you do do them, and you'll probably do them better because you won't be distracted and you'll be more focused. And your, your physical and emotional health will go up simply by not getting all upset and pissed off and twisted over things you can't control. 
So it's kind of deceptive in a positive way. At least you're moving in the right direction. But if, if we don't focus on, and more importantly, identify what we can change, it's hard for us to design our lives in the way that we want them to be. And we feel like we're working really hard, we're doing mostly the right things, but we're not really where we want to be and we're not, we're not moving more in that direction. There's nothing like any level of continuous progress to keep you motivated. But as, even, at, even at some point, that progress becomes insufficient or too slow. Or the most basic goals that we set for ourselves we eventually reach, and while things are better... then we cease to progress. And I always say life's a sliding scale. If you're not progressing, then life is making you regress. So to get that, you know, get that concept really deeply rooted into who we are and what we are, we have to start out from the concept of lifestyle design, which, again, I've talked about a lot. But I think when you say it that way, people start to think, like, man, I don't want to design my life. I want my life to be spontaneous. I want my life to be fun. I want my life to be enjoyable. Designing is when we get down with a pencil and we place limitations on things and we judge whether or not they're going in the right direction. That doesn't sound fun, especially if you're a, like the, the group of people out there hearing me today that need to do this the most are 18 to 30 years of age. And that's where you really, I just want to go about in my friend. And you can do all that stuff, but you still need to design your life. Because what lifestyle design is, is not sitting down and continuously designing every aspect of your life all the time to where you beat all the fun out of life. A person who designs a building and then occupies it, whether it's a house and they live in it, or it's a commercial structure and they run a business out of it, and they were a big part of the design, they work with an architect, they don't sit around designing it continuously. They design it, and then it serves that functionality that they're looking for. And maybe if they want to add to it, append to it, they, they go back to the work part of it. But in the end, they design it so that it, it functions, and it performs that which they want it to do. So that's what lifestyle design really is. It, it's not this continuous, laborious thing. It's setting up systems, processes, procedures in your life, guidances, budgets, etc., scheduling and timelines, and then... Then you just use that vehicle, and every once in a while, we perform a sanity check on it and tweak it. So it doesn't have to be boring and tedious. <clears throat> the problem is most people won't do that, and the alternative is terrifying, if you actually understand it. The alternative to not designing your life is one of the most horrific prospects in existence, because a human being seeks above all things freedom. That's what we most want. We want to be free, to pursue that which we want to pursue. And the alternative to not designing your life is to have someone else do it for you. you. That's one of those A and B and there's no C option. And that's because society is set up with a multitude of interactive and interconnected systems with, and this is part of what makes people get away with being unprepared, an incredible amount of redundancy. So that if we look at a person's socioeconomic status when they're a child, If they don't do anything except go along and get along and they don't actively design their life, we can predict with spooky, absolutely spooky accuracy about how much money they'll make, uh, about how many kids they'll have if they have any kids, uh, uh, you know, what kind of school they'll go to, what kind of grades they'll get, uh, what their retirement will look like, and we can even predict with spooky accuracy about the age at which they'll die. 
And if you think that's just because we have average ages of death, we can, no, we can actually, demographers can go in and look down to this person born in this place to this income level uh, that went in this school system is, is going to break or you know, exceed or uh, miss the average you know, by this much. And then a group of people out of that specific demographic, it'll work. It'll work. They'll be, you know, somebody will get hit by a car and that'll throw it off. But over across the averages, it'll work. Which means these systems that are in place, governmental systems, social systems, corporate systems, etc., are designed on the averages, the people that just go along to get along. And that way you're in basically a maze. You know, the rat maze we talk about, it's not just the cubicles at work. It's the whole of society. And so you go down this corridor that way, and then there's a block here, so you're going to turn there. And all of this is already known. So if you think that it, like designing your life sucks, well, how does it feel to have somebody else do that for you and control you? And see you as basically, as in the matrix, a battery. Because those are your two choices. Now, before we move forward from here, I want to talk about the flaw in Stephen Covey's Circle of Influence and Circle of Concern. Because I've talked about that a lot, and I don't know if I've ever really dug into like a little technical piece of it that is actually really important. There is this sphere around us of all the things that concern us, the price of tea in China, the ass clowns on the news, and a lot of that shit, we have no ability whatsoever to influence in any way. So we should let go of it for the most part. We might be aware of it, Because there may be things we can influence or control that can mitigate that thing we cannot control. The stupidity going on in a financial sector, uh, we can't control that, but we might exit a particular financial position. So when the stupidity becomes apparent to all, all the people that aren't paying attention and they react to it, we're already out of the way. That's an example of, I can't influence this, but I can respond to it over here. And then we have the things we can influence. But there's a third component to that. Really, the circles should be th seen as like a bullseye of three. And in the center, the smallest circle is that which you can control. We have what we can control, what we can influence, and what we're concerned about. And if we don't see the, and the, the key then is the difference between control and influence. I can influence my friends. I can influence you. I cannot control you. Just because I put out a positive influence doesn't mean that you'll follow it. I might put out a very positive influence that doesn't really work for you. And you might use it differently than I intended, but for, for good. And then that's an example of influence versus control. I do control the words that come out of my mouth. I do control the food that goes into my mouth. I do control the information that I absorb. I do control the information that I put back out to other people in form of write, you know, rhetoric of writing and speaking, etc. I do control those things. I control the temperature of the water in the fish tank in front of me. I can influence the temperature of the water in my pool. Do you see the difference? I have a thermometer that I can set to a specific temperature that those angelfish are going to be at 79 degrees because that's where I want it to be. My pool, I can put some shade over it and it doesn't get so hot. But it's too big of a body of water. All I can do is provide influence for it. And beyond that, I can have knowledge of it. And then respond to that knowledge. So I know not to go swimming in January. It's too cold in there. Got it? So we got to break those things down and understand those components. Before we get into 
identifying that which can be changed, let's take a look at the wisdom of accepting the things we can't change. Because a lot of people are really afraid to do that. One of the biggest advantages is something that no one seems to talk about. But it is realizing where and how you are helpless. Where, where and how you are a limited being. And that seems like a negative thing, but, but the reality is we are all limited beings. My, my grandson's getting to that stage where he wants to know about martial arts and fighting and everything. And, of course, I'm his grandpa, and I'm, so I'm big and tough and strong, and I can take on the whole world. And, you know, he was asking me about my martial arts experience and all, and was I in tournaments and stuff because he's doing jiu-jitsu and all. And I'm like, what are those like? And he's like, well, did you ever lose? I'm like, oh, of course I lost. Right? And what I tried to explain to him is I said, no matter how big and strong you are, There's someone that's bigger and stronger than everybody, than anybody. There's like one strongest person in the world. And that, that is not just about your ability to fight. No matter how smart you are, there's probably some, someone that's smarter. There's one smartest person in the world. And they'll be weak in some, you know, probably many other areas. We all have weaknesses. We all have things that are beyond our limits beyond our and, and beyond our control. And the wisdom in their acceptance is not just... So that we can just say, well, I'm going to turn off the news and not care. Because some of the things that we have concerns about that we don't influence, we still need knowledge of. And being able to, when we, we just went through kind of this between control and influence. So then there's the things we cannot change. We may not be able to influence them or control them. But we can have knowledge of them and figure out how they actually do affect us. Or they don't affect us at all. And now we can make smart decisions. So there's tremendous wisdom there. But the danger of not identifying that which you can change is that that knowledge of, oh, this thing does suck, won't be acted upon in a way that creates redundancy or protection in your life. Or not realizing that you can change the way that you're educating yourself will, will lead you to not becoming as, as good as you want to be in that area of life. Or not identifying that you're actually miserable in a pursuit that's paying the bills or doing well for you, and not identifying that even though you might know you're miserable, but you don't really even identify that you could change that. There, there's a million things you can do to earn a living and put a roof over your head. And it doesn't always involve running your own business. There's other ways to change that. As I said yesterday, Sunday really, but yesterday for you, Not everybody should be in a business, but everybody should treat their life as though they were. And you can only do that if you identify that which can be changed. I, one, I, I've talked before about being a business consultant. I've spent a lot of my life, one way or another, being a consultant to other business people. And what amazed me is, things aren't going well. We want you to come here and help us do better. And then when you started saying, well, here's the things you need to do differently, we don't want to do things differently. Really let that sink in. And you, I mean, you're talking about people that have done well in life, that are successful, intelligent people, asking you to come help them, but then resisting any sort of a change because, well, we can't change that. Well, what did you think I was going to do? Tell you to keep doing what you're doing and then it would just magically get better? So we must identify the things that we can alter the things that are in our control, and we must identify the things that we can alter that are within our influence. And what we really need when we talk about the wisdom to know the difference, 
the critical wisdom to know the difference is, this is the difference in what, what I control and what I influence and how great my influence is. It's more complex, it's more nuanced, and it's more important. And what I wanted to do with you today is actually keep this pretty simple and make it pretty concrete by going through eight areas where you can identify things that can be changed and how to approach them and how those actually create eight areas of, of, of true health in our lives. The first one is your approach to other people, which I call your social health. Right, your social health. How is your, your, your? We also talk about social capital. Social capital is a direct outlay of social health if you're doing it right. I'm going to say something as a clarifier here before I proceed. In any one of these areas, you could successfully deceive other people and actually have something that looks pretty good for a while. But if it's sustainable and it's real, it's not by deception, right? So there are people that have massive social influence. Eh, they're not the best people in the world. We know that, right? We can come up with celebrity names and stuff like that. But in the real world, and our interactions beyond our Twitter or Tumblr account, the way we approach other people has a, a huge impact on that social health and therefore social capital. What you can get done by making a phone call or asking someone uh, to do something to help somebody, what have you. And... What most people try to do is justify how they interact with other people with, oh, I'm a good person. You can be a good person, but if you actually want to design that part of your life, then you have to accept the fact that you could be better. And I know a lot of people will get resistant. Well, if I tried to like help everybody, well, no one said you should help everybody. No one said you should always take on every you know, case of someone that needs help. Or that you should always be incredibly polite to everybody that you speak to, no matter how they speak to you. No one's saying that. But are you truly interacting with others in a way that meets your goals for your life and what you want to achieve? And that, that really starts with identifying, well, wh where, are you, where are you weak in areas that you actually have control over? I don't return phone calls would be a perfect example because I don't have the time. You have the same amount of time that everybody else does. So then it involves how to identify the calls that are most important to be returned. And I'm not talking about from a strictly business standpoint of, well, since my boss called me, because that's the obvious one. If there is any, and then how do I control the thing that makes me think I don't have the time so that I can get back to the people that matter and let them know that they matter to me? Or what's my alternative to returning the call? An email, a text. I know a lot of people say that's impersonal, but it beats the shit out of silence. And we should all dig into our approach to other people. How do we respond when somebody's a dick? Right? Like, sometimes it does make sense to be a dick back to them. Sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's for your own personal amusement. Right? Like, this person really can't do anything, and they were a dick to me, so now I'm going to amuse myself by being a bigger dick. Not the most mature thing to do, but I understand it. But if your response is always, in every instance, to reciprocate by being a dick back, then that means it's probably an area you need to work on, because why is that person being a dick? Are they a natural dick? Are they having a really bad day, and do you have an opportunity to help them out? And being able to determine the difference. 
that will only begin when you start to ask yourself that question. And in and, and a lot of instances, you don't have to do a lot more than begin asking that question. As you ask that question, you start to rewire the brain. The human brain is incredible. And you always get answers. I didn't say right answers, but you always get answers to any questions that you put into that computer. And then you sort through them and you figure them out. That's a big part of our dreaming, by the way. So we have to evaluate our approach to other people. And one of the best ways to do all of these is, is the most rudimentary form of journalism. If you interact with somebody and you come away from it feeling really good, write down a couple notes about it. If you interact with somebody you come away feeling really bad, Write a couple notes about it. And if it turns out you feel bad because they were a complete ass and there was really nothing else you could have done, then that's something that you cannot influence or control. If they were a complete ass and there were ways you could have handled it better, then you have to determine how the influence and control could have been better executed. And these are little tweaks. You don't have to spend tremendous amounts of time on it. You also have to evaluate your approach to recreation and fun. I refer to that as your emotional health. Because it is important that we do get out and enjoy ourselves, that we have enough social interaction to create enough emotional health in our lives. But I find a lot of people, and we'll get to financial later, but are making poor financial decisions because they have poor emotional health. They feel good because they went shopping. Well, that didn't really help at all. Because it's like taking an aspirin for pain when you have cancer. It might make the pain feel a little bit better for a while, but you really need to deal with the underlying cancer, right? You know, or maybe a stronger drug, because drugs and aspirin probably wouldn't help suppress cancer pain. Very much. Might in the beginning, though, you don't know. So to, to be able to take this approach, you have to start thinking about the things that you really love most in your life and the people that you really love most in your life. And how do you make those two things work together? And where do you need to accept that they need to go separately from each other? Like I mentioned yesterday, I went out and hung out with two great guys and went fishing. It was a blast. I love my wife a hell of a lot more than two of those guys put together, though. I mean, I, my dedication and my love to my wife is, is the, 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 the most dedication to anything in the world that I have. Not big on fishing, though. So we also have to be okay with I'm doing this thing and she's doing that thing. But then attention needs to be paid to to going back into, well, what are, what are the things that are common in this world of fun and enjoyment and recreation? Couples that play together stay together. I know that's like a stupid, cheesy rhyme or whatever that I think I just made up, but it's true. It really is. And, in fact, I've heard it said, I don't remember where the source of this is, that inside every man is a boy. And the, the perfect woman for him is the woman that can make that boy come out and play but yet not take away from his ability to be a man and a provider. And I don't remember who the source of that was, but I completely agree with that. So we need to evaluate how am I in my life designing recreation, play, and enjoyment? Because a lot of people screw that up with, well, we take a vacation every year. And when they come back from vacation, they're like, I can't, I'm so glad I'm home. Oh, that was great and all, but I'm tired. And like they really didn't enjoy it. They've convinced themselves that they've enjoyed it. Or I go do this thing, or I go play this game, or whatever it is, and you, you really realize like they're just getting through it. I've known, like, I love to hunt. I've known people that say they love to hunt, and you realize like every time they go out hunting, they're really just like putting themselves through some kind of, they're cold, and they're unhappy, and they're miserable, and they're just toughing it out, and they're, they're ready for it to be over almost before it starts. And I'm sure there's a lot of other things. That's just one I've seen a lot. So, 
one of the things is we've convinced ourselves sometimes because of an obligation or certain things that other people like to do that, like, I really like this. And we need to evaluate that as well. And we need to build into our design of our lives as much emotional health as that we can. Now, a lot of times people think, well, if I really focus on that, then I'm going to let go things like being a you know responsible uh, wage earner or something like that. No, because we're not going to focus on one of these to the exclusion of the other. We're going to seek to design our lives so that all of these things are considered and taken to a point, and then they offset each other. If we find ourselves focusing on one to the exclusion of the others, that in itself is a problem. Next up, your approach to employment or business, which I refer to as your productive health, your productivity. And I think that it's important for all humans to do something productive. Now, that doesn't necessarily, you notice that I, I, a lot of you would like conflate this with uh, economic health and, and financial health and, and money. Uh, maybe not. I mean, there are, you know, couples where they have a single wage earner couple. I, I know it's not as common as it was in the 1950s, but it still does exist. And that doesn't mean that the other person's not productive. It could be a woman that's a homemaker in the classic 1950s way. But imagine that you get to a point in life where you really have pulled off the economic thing to the point where you're retired and you really don't need any money. Do you really want to be not productive in any way, shape, or form? That productivity can take on many different aspects. Um, and it might be combined and kind of Venn diagram over top of things like emotional and social health that we just talked about. But the best way to understand it, and that's why I kind of anchor it here, is your approach to business and or employment. Because I said not everybody's going to be in business as an entrepreneur. But we should evaluate, like, well, how do I approach my employment? And a lot of people say, well, Jack, I have a normal job. You know, anything from I wash dishes to I'm a night watchman to when I'm an engineer. I go to work, I do my job, and I come home. What else do you want from me? Maybe nothing. Maybe a lot more. I don't know, because what do you want from yourself? Is that doing the most for you from a standpoint of purely one way to look at it is money. Could you make more money doing something else and be at least as happy as you are now? Because if you're going to go less happy, then you got to think about how that impacts you. But, you know, are, are you are you seeing yourself as an independent business person, even as an employee? That's something we talk about all the time as well. What can you do to do that better? And you notice I'm not giving you a lot of answers. I'm giving you a lot of questions today. And that's because your answer will be different from mine, from, from the person that sits next to you at work, from your buddy from high school, you know, from your friend that lives down the road. Everybody's answers, because we're not designing a lifestyle, we're designing our lifestyles here. So we have to think about how we are going to take that approach to being as productive as possible in the things that we're putting out. This could be a hobby, and you put out something you give away that's part of your charity, which is another form of health we'll talk about. Or it could be, at work, how do I be the most productive employee I can be? Without sacrificing, to any negative extent, the rest of my life. Because I think a lot of people have convinced themselves uh, today that the people that work the hardest and do the best in business or work, employment, etc., don't really get ahead, and that's not true. In general, they do. They do. And I, I, you can, I know you can go into certain aspects of, of, of professionalism where 
politics and ass-kissing exceed productivity, but in general. And those things, what do you control? You do control who you work for. So if you work for someone where that is the case, you either choose to accept the limitation or you find somewhere where that is not the case. And it, it, it amazes me with the people that tell me the most about specifically work that, you know, people don't get promoted on merit or whatever, where they're at. When you say, okay, so what are you doing to be better at your job? They seldom have an answer. They'll say, well, I just work really hard every day. Okay, but what are you doing to be better at that? What, what, are, you, what are you taking on in addition to what they just give you? And they don't have any answers for that. You know, this person that got promoted, do they have any level of certification or specialized knowledge that you don't? Of course not. Well, do you know that? Do you, do you actually know that? Have you ever had a sit-down conversation with your first-line supervisor, however that works out in your world, and said, what are the things that I can do to be better for you? And usually, no. And, you know, what are the other opportunities in your field? They usually don't have an answer. The people that are the most sure that they're getting screwed generally have done the least for themselves and the least for their productivity. And most of the things that we're talking about there are things that are not just in the influence circle. They're in the control circle because you control yourself. Next up, and this, these all tie together. They're all holistic. Your approach to knowledge and skills. What is your approach to becoming smarter, more informed, more intelligent, better at what you do? And a lot of people think that they're always working on their knowledge, but they're really not. Would they really know more tomorrow than they do today? Is there one thing? I mean, that's, that's one of my things. Like, can I learn something today? Just one thing. I don't plan on checking out for a long time when it comes to, to getting in the box and, and, and being buried. So if I do that every day, and if I've done that consistently every day up till now, that's a lot of knowledge. Most people actually stop learning about the time they become proficient at their job, and they, they just kind of, you know, stymie right in the middle of that, like their progression stops. They become really good at it, but since they're not working on their productive health, they kind of just settle into a certain point. And at that point in their life, you know, they've had some kids, they've gotten over the basic concepts of becoming a parent, and they do that kind of okay. And, and they, you know, they can pay their bills, so they do that kind of okay. A lot of people refer to this, this stage in life as a midlife crisis, though it can certainly happen earlier. A lot of times what a midlife crisis really is, is you've been in that mode for 10 years, and now you're 45, and you realize the last 10 years you ain't done shit, and you really don't know what to do about it. Or you, you went into that mode at like 40 and now you're 50. And the, the later and the longer you've been in that, that mode, the more that midlife crisis can be, especially with men. I think we're a little harder on judging ourselves that way. Maybe we're a little pragmatic about doing it when we get to it. I don't know. But for some reason, it does seem men that more have that, oh, my God, what have, I, what have I failed to do in my life? What should I do now moment than, than, than women do? But if we focus on our educational health throughout our lives and we identify the things there that can be changed to do more, then we, we're less likely to have that because we'll continue that progress. Because we're back to that thing I've been saying forever, guys, that sliding scale of life. If we're not progressing in that education and skill set department, 
if we're not improving our educational health, our, our knowledge level of health, then we're actually going to be an atrophy. You know, there's things that I probably could still do, but I haven't done them for a long time, so I, can, I can't do them anywhere near as well. Uh, this weekend, we talked about tons of stuff, just guys like guys do, and I talked about when I was in communications and fiber optic cabling. And when you terminate a fiber optic connector, basically you're putting this little thing about the size of your hair, about the size of two human hairs, into a tube and gluing it in there, cutting the end off with a diamond, a diamond edge cutter, and then you polish it. So at the end of that glass, specifically the area that's smaller than a human hair, is clear enough that light will pass through it properly. There's a way to polish that connector. And that's done with a figure eight motion. And there's different ways that that's done. One way might be on a rubber pad. The other might be on a glass uh, surface with a, with a film uh, measured in microns, like a very fine sandpaper over top of it for different connectors. And in each of those instances, there's different ways that pressure is done and little little ways that you tweak things. And we were talking about training people and how difficult it can be and how I would have a person, within a couple days, they could do the basic job, but they'd polish a connector and I'd look at it under a microscope and I'd go, no, there's an imperfection there. And then just a couple of passes, I could make that imperfection go away. And they could sit there and do it for hours. And it'd take a certain amount of experience and time and even knowing what to look for before they could fix that. Well, I guarantee you that I could probably do that today better than most people, but I guarantee you I can't do it at the, at the proficiency that I had at 24 years of age when I, in, in a, a relatively short period of time, didn't put in a, a single network of over 20,000 strands. That's 40,000 connectors. And you only get better every day if you're doing it at least on some level of a frequency. So we're not going to continuously do everything every day there's going to be things like i the reason i haven't done that i don't have a need to do that now it's a it's a it's a, a useful analogy but we need to be working on improving that you know some skill some knowledge daily and we need to constantly be asking ourselves when we feel like we're stale you know we're, we're kind of in a stalemate with that we're kind of in a pause okay well what can i change well one thing i could change is i could decide that I'm going to pick a new thing to learn about, even if it's just learning a new vocabulary in a given uh, area. You know, one of the things I've recommended that you guys do is Investopedia has a financial term of the day. And every day I get an email with a financial term in it. With my background and how long I've been around, most of the time I look at that term and go, okay, yeah. Usually I read a little bit to see, is there... Are they going to use something in there to explain this thing I already know about that will lead me to something else I don't know? And a lot of times the answer is no. But every once in a while I learn something there. For most people without a background in business, finance, economics, and accounting, for the first year, most of those words are going to be words you really, even if you think you understand them, you don't. And five minutes a day on that one thing is improving your knowledge and eventually your skill set as a business person, an investor, a money, a money manager. But if you get to the point where that's really not something that floats your boat anywhere, you can do that in just about any walk of life. There's probably something out there that does that for you. You know, there's more to life than reading novels. But if you're going to read novels, change what you read about once in a while. Because then you do learn about other things. You, you, you have a, a broader understanding of the world by understanding the viewpoints of other people. So really, that's what I spend a lot of time on because it is, you know, it's, it's the lie that's used to sell, the truth that's used to sell a lie. 
And education is priceless. Let's use to sell a young, stupid kid on going $100,000 in debt for a degree in bitterness studies. And their education is not only priceable at the $100,000, but it ain't nowhere near as valuable as the price. Price and value are independent from each other. If you were on Investopedia and getting their daily mails, you'd know that by now, right? So we need that continuous improvement to education, but we need to understand that what we control is where, how, and, 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 and what we do with it once we have it. Next up, your approach to giving back and charity. Notice I said giving back and charity, and I separated the two. I think there's incredibly generous people that are taking completely the wrong approach to this because they're not getting a lot of um, contributory health out of it. Giving back isn't necessarily writing a, pay, writing a check. In fact, in many ways, writing a check to charity is the least, um, it puts the least amount of requirement on a person. If a person has a good, stable income, and they budget well, and they're saving well, and they're investing well, and they do well, and they make a commitment to give away $500 a month, and it doesn't really hurt them at all. They don't really feel any, any, any financial stress in that. That's wonderful. But really, how much are they going to get out of it? And, and I know, well, you don't do it to get something out of it. Yeah, but you should anyway, without, without expectation. But a person that like joins the Kiwanis Club, a lot of people are going, oh, I know them, and a lot of people are going, what the hell is that? I'll tell you in a second. Um, when they go out every, you know, every weekend or one weekend a month or something, and they, they build wheelchair ramps for, for people that are in wheelchairs so they can get in and out of their home, they're giving a lot, but they're getting a lot. And it's going to boost their social and emo emotional health. At least initially, it's going to boost their productive health and their educational health. They're producing something, right? And they're getting an education because maybe the first time you go do that, you don't really know how to do basic carpentry. So you'll learn by being there and eventually you'll be able to teach someone else. Well, that improves your educational health because you learn more by teaching than you, you learn by being taught. So this we've gotten all the way down now to contributory, but the first four... Actually, the contributory, when done properly, contribute, contributes to the first four. It's pretty interesting, isn't it, the way these things all interact. So I'm all about, we give away money every year. I'm all about doing some level of charity. But that's really more like, I think, on some levels, we'd call, you know, in the most positive way, a social responsibility. It's also, you know, for, from my viewpoint is, I have a lot of money taken from me by government every year. And... I don't control what they do with it. I don't. I, I'm not even. I'm not even capable at this point in my life, from what I know, of deceiving myself into believing that I influence what they do with it. I don't think when I fill out a ballot that I have any influence whatsoever. I don't think carrying a picket sign has any influence whatsoever. I believe lobbyists have a hell of a lot more influence on what they do than I ever will. I, I don't want to do that. So I don't have any influence on that. So if I sit around and bitch about it, what am I doing? I'm focusing on my circle of concern rather than my influence. But what I have not only influence on, but total control over, is the money that I give. So instead of bitching about the morally reprehensible things in my view that are done with my money, 
I have the control how some of my money can do things that I find to have the utmost immoral integrity. So when I choose a charity to donate to, I look at it from a standpoint of not just, hey, these guys put nine, 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 nine of every ten cents into the actual thing instead of like the Red Cross buying the CEO a jet. But, it, you know, if somebody's mission is not something I really believe in, it doesn't really matter that nine-tenths of, of the money is going to the mission, right? If nine-tenths of the, of the money is going to a mission I, that I, I don't agree with at all, that's my, that's my problem with taxes. In fact, in some instances, I'm glad government's so inefficient Because some of the things they do, if they were, you know, if they were much more efficient, they would get much more of the things I don't want done done. So when I look at a charity, that's how I look at. It. So people are like, why don't you publish a list of your charities that you recommend? Because I want you to actually contribute to your own health, your own contributory health, by actually doing the work to find out that which fits your worldview, your view of ethics. And your view of how much money should actually go to the mission. Because you, you can be unfair with that, too. There are certain aspects and places in charity where 90% going to the actual mission really doesn't work because there's so many things in the way of getting it done that maybe a little more money needs to go. But, you know, 80% going to salaries and marketing and lobbying and 20% actually helping someone Hello, ASPCA. Um, no, no, I'm not about I'm not about that either. Even though your goal is helping animals, well, you're not really doing that now, are you? So I would, if I wanted to, to say this month, I want to contribute to an organization that helps promote animal welfare. Find an organization that not only meets my objective from a standpoint of what I want to help with, but will put most of my money for the sector into actually getting that done. And that's what I want you to do. But that's just the charity side. The more important side to me is, hey, when my neighbor needs something, I do it. You know, a, a few weeks ago, my son, my nephew, and I could have sat and watched my neighbor's yard burn and waited for the fire department to do it. We were contributing when we got hoses out and put the damn fire out. That fire wasn't going to come across the street and burn down my, my house. We could have made sure that didn't happen. Now, I know that like most people would go do that. I'm using it more as a metaphor. What you can do and identifying what you can do is part of identifying what you can change. So we need to be looking at our lifestyle standpoint of who we can help and how we can help them and who we should help. Because one of the things that people say in defense of not doing anything is true. I only have so much time. I can only help so many people. Well, then making those decisions of whom to help and when and how are critical, aren't they? How about, you know, we talked about this thing starting off with a prayer. So your approach to meditation, contemplation, prayer, religion, what have you, all of those things. See, to me, that's actually the true form of mental health. The care of your own mind the care of your own psyche. And I don't care how you do that. I'm not a religious person. I don't go to church. Please don't ask me to go with you. I'm going to tell you no. But I know for many people, it's incredibly rewarding. It's incredibly beneficial. And it's because they believe what they believe. And that's good, and they should pursue that in the best ways possible. What's your approach to that, though? 
just showing up once a week. You know, there's probably you could probably do more for that aspect of your life. But even for the people that aren't there, people more like me, like whether it be a a, a true form of meditation or simply contemplation, taking the time to think about the big things in life, about things that seem to break the rule. They're not within your circle of influence, and they're certainly not within your circle of control. You know, the entirety of the space-time continuum, I'm sorry to say, is outside of your, your, your ability to influence or control. I know some people think they have influence over it. Those people generally, I think, have a mental illness. And we're trying to have mental health here instead. But it's, it, it's, if, if it's something you find interesting, it's worthy of contemplation. I feel like I get a lot of mental health by watching the fish in the tank that are in front of me. You know why? Because they don't care. They don't care. You know, I say, like, if it doesn't affect the temperature of the water in your pool, you shouldn't care. They literally, that's them. They have that 79-degree water. They don't care. Their temperature is great. They were fed today. There's light in there. There's other fish in there. There's structures in there. They go on about that 55-gallon world as though it's the entire world. And I'm not saying that we should put ourselves into a fishbowl, but there, there is something valuable for me in the contemplation of, hey, look how this one fish is behaving. Maybe that doesn't do it for you, but what is your approach? And, and what, I, what I'm trying to get you to do today is not, and I, and I know that like some people are out there answering these questions defensively today. And just realize you're only defending yourself from yourself. You're not doing it for me. It, it's the second voice in your head today that's causing you to be defensive, not mine. What I'm trying to get you to do is actually just think about these areas. And if you really believe that you're doing the best you're capable of and there's nothing you can change in that area, fine. But I think if you're honest, you'll almost always find something you can control and change and do for the better. The next is your approach to exercise, diet, activity, or your physical health. Now, there are certain aspects of our physical health that may indeed be outside of our control. I believe there's people, if they lived the most optimal health way that they could, they had the best diet, the best doctors, whatever, they still might end up, because of genetics, coming down with brain cancer or liver cancer. And, and there may, they may be terminal and they may not be able to stop it. But in general, we all have some impact on our physical health. And it's a place where America often fails, yet it's the one we always say, well, at least you have your health, and that's what we're actually talking about. Meaning, well, you're not sick. Though most Americans walking around today are sick, even if they otherwise don't look like they're sick physically. And I, I think it's interesting that when you kind of open your eyes to it, like one of the most depressing places for me in the world is Walmart. Because I look around and I see people that I can see, even if they're not heavily overweight or something, I can see they're physically sick. I can look at their eyes, and I can see that the color is not right in their eyes. I can look at their face, and their gaze is wrong. And I can see that even though they may not be, you know, they're not going to be in, in an ER tomorrow or dead the next day, that they're physically not healthy. And then I look, and you know, the person that's physically not healthy is loading up the freaking uh, shopping cart with ho hos and ding dongs. You know, and they have a little kid sitting in there that I'm sure they love, but you're basically sending that kid down the same path. And if you've ever paid attention to that, 
you know, with obesity is a perfect example. The epidemic's getting worse generation to generation. Because the fat person today wasn't fat when they, you know, a lot of them weren't fat when they were in eighth grade. You see fat people all the time. You look at their pictures when they were in high school or whatever, and they, they were attractive, and they were thin, and they were lean, and they were healthy. Well, now just take and take that person and say, well, what if they had been obese in eighth grade? What would they look like today? Look at their kids in ten years. You'll see. So we have to take the approach of evaluating our physical health. How do we take care of ourselves? You know, not everybody's going to be in CrossFit, and God knows not everybody should. I think a lot of people are should. But everybody can take a walk or stretch, you know, get like the people on TV and do the warrior pose and do yoga or take a, a martial art, including not eat. It doesn't have to be a hard style, a, a, a Tai Chi or a, a Qigong, which is really not a martial art, but it really is very martial art-like. It's kind of like the, the, the Venn diagram of martial arts and, and, and yoga. All of these things can contribute to our physical health. But what's interesting is if you have, and when you see again how this all stuff ties together, if you have a good approach to other people, so you have social health, and you have a good approach to recreational and uh, recreation and fun, so you have solid emotional health, uh, and you have a good approach to employment and or business, so you have a, a high level of productive health, and you have a good approach to gaining knowledge and skills, so you have a solid grasp on your educational health. And you're looking for ways to give back and to be charitable, and you have a solid contributory health. And that you spend time thinking about your mental health from a standpoint of being, you know, being willing to contemplate things or meditate, or if it's what works for you, prayer, spirituality in some form or shape or, or what have you. It's almost inevitable. It's almost inevitable that you're going to be physically overall fairly healthy. And just those other things are going to lead to things that make you make smart decisions about your physical health. Taking it, something that it seems like it maybe it wouldn't, your, your, your productive health at work. You know, if we start evaluating how productive you are and you realize, you know, man, after lunch, every day I just feel like I could use a nap. What are you eating? What do you eat? And do you control what you eat? So you have an answer to the first question, and I know the answer to the second question. Yes, you control what you eat. If you're sleepy after lunch every day, maybe what you need to take control of is what you're eating. Bet it impacts your physical health. I bet it impacts your physical health. I think most people that feel like they need a nap after lunch, it's probably what they're eating. And why do they do it? They're, they're looking to improve their emotional health so they make a bad decision about their diet. Hey, you know, a big plate of burritos and beans and stuff would be great today. We know we shouldn't be eating that crap. But it makes us feel better for a time. So we put a patch on the wound to our emotional health. And we damage our physical health. And we damage our productive health. And therefore, the very thing we were addressing, our emotional health, declines along with our physical health and our productive health. You see how it's all tied together. If you focus on any one aspects of the, this in your life and you, you truly think about the things you can do better without going extreme so you do damage to your, your life, they all begin to help each other. 
And I saved the one that I really think is one of the most, is probably the most important to get right for last. And I think it can be, I'm not saying it is, but it can be the building block upon which everything else, or the foundation upon which all these other building blocks go. And that is your approach to wealth, investing, savings, or debt, your financial health. And, and this is one of those examples where people often claim the least amount of control, and yet they, they are not doing the things that they can. I've been big on saying this forever. 10% of what you earn gets put away. I know everybody says that. But how many people don't do it? How many people just flat out don't do it? And then they tell you, well, I, you know, this is out of my control. I, I just don't earn much money. Well, great. Then you don't have to save very much. I only earn $1,000 a month. Great. You only have to save $100. Imagine if you earned $100,000. You'd have to save $10,000. Think about how much harder that would be. You know, if, if you only make $10, it's easy. You only have to save a dollar. See how easy that is? People just don't want to think about it that way because it requires giving up something. And well, what are you really giving up? Well, some people say, I can't pay my bills. Well, then, you know, and, and sometimes that's legitimate. I mean, I'm not saying that nobody ends up in a hard financial way, and they really it's really not because they did anything really wrong. I mean, medical bankruptcy is probably one of the most common forms of misery in America today. And, and sometimes that happens, but there's mechanisms to deal with it. But in general, most of the people that bitch the most about not having are not doing the things that they could be doing to make their financial life better. And if we're educating ourselves, one of the things we might, when we focus on our educational health, is how to better manage our money. And instead of chasing a quick return with incredible risk, we seek investments that put a priority on the safety of the investment itself for acceptable returns over time. Boring, but it works. Remember, I, I've told this story many times about you know not taking advice from someone unless they're doing better than you at a thing. And I often tell the, the story of my great-uncle Stefan, my dad's uncle. And my dad always telling me, your, your, your great-uncle Stefan was married three times and divorced three times. He had no shit about taking care of women. He doesn't know nothing about a healthy relationship with a woman. He can't do it. He's terrible at it. If you want a date, he could probably tell you how to get a date. I mean, the guy got married three times. But when it comes to his advice about a long-term relationship with a woman, don't take his advice, son. If you do, you're going to end up where he is. If you take advice from a person and you actually put it into play and you do it the way they tell you to do it, you're probably going to get a similar result to them. So if you want to be divorced three times, take your Uncle Stefan's advice about women, but I suggest you don't. We also said, in spite of being divorced three times, paying alimony and stuff to three different women, he's, 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 he's done very well for himself financially, and he's not like got a huge earning side. So he's very good at managing money and economics. So if you want to take his advice, take his advice on money. You know the first piece of advice that man ever gave me? Save 10% of every dollar you ever earn. Save it. Save it in a way where it's safe and secure from other people, and you won't lose it. Doesn't mean you don't take any risk at all, but you're not going to lose it. It's not going to be gone. If you take a risk on it, and you end up losing 10% of 10% on one piece of it, and it's 1% of the whole, big deal. Your gains offset it. But you take it. 
And you, you, you take it as like a moral obligation to yourself and your family. So the guy that my father pointed to, and my father does well financially as well, the guy my father pointed to is the man I should listen to about money. Built the cornerstone of everything he has on that one simple thing that most people won't do and they could do. And the way I've always said that I can prove it to you is if I give you a 10% raise, you'll piss it away. But you didn't need it today because you didn't have it today. And somehow you managed. And if I give you a 10% pay cut, you would hate me for it. You'd be angry about it. But it happens to people all the time and they adapt. So do it to yourself. Make it a habit. It changes everything. But there's the, the, the big reason this is so important here is one of the people I really admire for like half his work and the other half of it I just think is completely wrong is Dave Ramsey. But one of the places where I think he's dead on is he's, when he talks about marriages, he says, and maybe this was the problem for Uncle Stefan. Maybe he was good at winning with money himself, but he wasn't good at winning with money with his spouse. But he's, what Dave says is people that win, couples that win with money win in life. And I think it's because it's one thing that we have the absolute most control of in our life. Now, I know that people have earning limitations. Not you know, Advice has to be coupled with skill and proper application and things like that. So I made a lot of money in sales. I have a natural aptitude for sales, and I, I, I took this approach to learning about sales. Same type of thing. Break down each component of it. What can you control? How can you do that better? Right? But that doesn't mean if you take that advice, you're going to go out and make the kind of money I did in sales. Doesn't even mean you're going to be successful. Maybe you're just not good at it. Maybe you don't have the aptitude. Maybe you should be doing something else. So everybody has some level of limitation of how much they can earn, and more importantly, that they're going to earn. Some people just don't want to do certain things, so they're not going to do them, so that's going to put a limitation. So there's always going to be a limitation on the income. But you control the in, you control what you do with it. You control what you do with it. And you have more control over the amount of it than you think that you do. But if you balance out these other equations, you'll start to see that. And you'll start to see opportunities. And then you'll start to figure out how to capitalize on those opportunities. The key to all this, though, is, first of all, knowing what you can versus what you can't change. A lot of times people think they can change things that they really can't, and they think they can't change things that they can. It's crazy. I, I've explained it, too, with, with you know investing and, and purchasing decisions. I explained it this way when, when somebody was criticizing my choice to lease our Toyota 4Runner. And they were explaining how if I had taken the same money and invested it, you know that, that I would have you know a return on that investment and, and you know buy a $10,000 car for cash instead. And, well, you need two of them, so buy two cars. And when I, I said, you know, but the financial model doesn't work that way. Because if I paid $20,000 cash for a car, that $20,000 is gone, and I've lost the opportunity that it will provide for me over six years. Versus a small component to service the lease and having that capital in my investments for those five, six years. And the only way to know that is by dropping it into Excel and running those numbers and making that determination and making that determination because don't go lease a car because Jack said so. What's your income level? What are your desires? What are your needs? What are you looking at buying and why? All of that goes into it. But in the end, you make a decision. Someone else who hasn't done that work looks at it, criticizes it, and tries to explain something that was completely the wrong 
financial decision for the application. And in the upshot at the end of that is people see security where there is risk and risk where there is security. When I bought a second home in Arkansas that we eventually moved to, but at the time we were just buying it to have a second home, my brother-in-law, who's a great guy, saw that as risky. But he turned around and bought an SUV that cost almost as much as that house. He financed a depreciating asset for five years. I financed an appreciating asset for 30 years. And then I turned around and put a tenant in it who paid my debt for me. Risk where there is security and security where there is risk. That's what most people see. The thing that they see the person do, they call risky. If they had focused on their educational health sufficiently, they would see the security in it. And then the important thing with understanding what you can versus you can't change is you can't shortcut this thing. So then you really have to think about what you should change. Sometimes the things that need to be changed, the timing is important. So maybe you should change your career, but maybe you shouldn't change it by just saying, I quit and I'm going to go find another job. Maybe there's some aspect of your educational and productive health that you need to clear up first. You know, you might be on a, take it to a physical health thing. You could be on a medication that you really need to get off of. But there's things that are wrong that you have to work on and fix before you can separate yourself from that or you'll die. And that's how a lot of people kill their financial health. Since I don't like this thing and I know it should change, I'll quit. I'll go do this instead, or I'll chase this quick return. You, you might as well just go down to the craps table and throw it all on Lucky 7. Could work out, probably won't. All those buildings in Vegas, right, they weren't built, they weren't built by people that went there and won. They were built by people that went there and lost. And that's a harsh reality. So we need to, to figure out what, of the things we, because we can change almost anything, but doesn't mean we should. And again, the timing of that change is critical. And as is the how it should change. That's the third part. We need to think what can you versus you cannot change. And then what you should change, and specifically how it should be changed. And again, the temporal component of timing is often very important to that. I've talked a lot about building businesses over the years. And I get people really excited. I say, I don't want you to go home and say, I quit my job because Jack said I should go do what I love. That's dumb. How are you going to take care of your family for the next three or four years? That might, might be what it takes to make things successful. But this is really simplistic. It's another one of those things that the government talks about educating our children and zero of what I've said today. They have your kids for 13 years. And then most of you self-finance through debt another four to six years of education, and no one teaches you any of this. So do you get upset about that? Because you really don't control that. You don't even really influence that. Go ahead and write a letter. Go ahead and write a letter to the school district and see what good it does you. But what do you control? You control your approach to other people and your social health. You control your approach to recreation fun and your emotional health. You control your approach to business, employment, etc., your productive, your productive health. 
You control your approach to developing knowledge and skills or your educational health. It doesn't always have to come from a building with a name on it. We live in a day and age where education is freely available if you'll go out and get it. You control your approach to how you give back your contributory health. You control your approach to how you contemplate life, to spirituality, to meditation, to prayer, to whatever it is that fits your life. You control that. That's your mental health. You control your approach to exercise, diet, and activity. And your, your general physical health is something you control. There's exceptions to these last two I just named, exercise, you know, mental and physical health. You could, somebody can drop a, a building on you and you, you know, you can't really change that. And it, you, you're dead. So your, your physical health is non-existent. Or you get hit by a car through no fault of your own and be crippled. And you don't really control that aspect of your, but in general, your physical health, you could have a mental defect that you can't fix. So you have poor mental health. You could have a mental, I, I think mental illness is over-diagnosed in America so that they can sell drugs. But there are people with legitimate mental illnesses. Most of us have known somebody. But wherever your baseline is, maintaining and improving that is something you control from a physical and a mental standpoint. And you absolutely, no matter how much you want to lie to yourself, you control how you manage and contribute to your financial health. Because when you say that, you control your financial health. People are like, well, it's easy for you to say or whatever. Well, that's because I did this shit my whole life. That's why. That's why it looks easy now. But even when I was broke, and I was, trust me, I had control over what I did with what I was able to produce and what I had. To say that you don't is to make an excuse. And it's to make an excuse because you don't want to make the, the difficult decision to do the right thing that you know that you should do. And that's why focusing on that what, which can be changed is one of the most important things we can do in our lives for ourselves, for our family, and for others. And it, it, it sometimes seems like a big sacrifice. And a lot of times it actually can look to someone on the outside somewhat selfish. But I believe focusing on yourself is important if you're going to focus on that which you control. How can you focus on that which you control if you don't focus inward upon yourself and do the right things for the right reasons as much as possible? And then don't be too harsh on judging yourself. We all screw this up. We're all going to fall short some, some aspect of this. That's the whole point. That's what makes reevaluating this on an ongoing basis worth doing. If you could just reach perfection in all this and do it, you wouldn't have to worry about it. Instead, we design these things into our lives. We do the best we can. We should never be afraid to sit back and take a look at each one of these aspects. Hope you enjoyed today's show. I enjoyed doing it. I think it was a good topic and something we haven't gone into for quite a while. I know some of you are like, where's the survival stuff? Dude, if you don't see survival in this, then I suggest you go back and listen to it again. Because winning with money, winning in life having the resources that we need, developing our skills and our education, having good social interactions with other people that we can depend on because we've been there for them. All of these things, when it comes to surviving the modern world, including the most hor hor horrible things that go wrong, they're all there. They're all there. So, again, hope you enjoyed today's show. With that, if you did and you want to help this show, help us out in the work that we do here, there's two ways you can contribute to that. One is to become a member of the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, 
You get exclusive benefits only available to members, including great discounts, like I talked about with our two sponsors today, um, and a bunch of other, like 70 companies you get discounts to. All you got to do to become a member, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members. You can see how to sign up there. We take online payments. We take cash, check, money order, silver. There's a bunch of different ways you can pay. comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. People that have served in the military, law enforcement, uh, Peace Corps, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, active duty or prior service, you qualify for a discount. Email me with TSPC service discount on the subject line before you join. I'll get you that discount code. Anybody else, just check it out today. If you like the show, you like what we do, if you think that you know this show's worth a couple dimes, consider joining. Next up is just to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. tspaz.com is where you'll find all of my reviews of items on Amazon. And again, everything that's there, uh, I own it, I use it, I spend my money on it, or I wouldn't recommend that you do so. Um, the item of the day today is the Mad Bull Propane Adapter for Airsoft. If you don't shoot airsoft guns, then this one really won't matter to you. Except you probably, if you are into shooting and guns and self-defense, you probably should be shooting airsoft. To me, there's nothing that you can you can do as often for as little money in, a, in as you know many locations as airsoft to train from a tactical standpoint. So I think it's awesome for that. It's also a lot of fun. I have never done this with a kid that was like, I don't want to do that. Little girls, little boys, doesn't matter. They all like to do it. My nieces love to do airsoft when they come over here. The thing is, even though it's less expensive than shooting, you know, quote unquote, a real gun, uh, it can get expensive. And one of the most expensive things isn't the ammo, and the gun's like a one-time expense. It's it's the green gas um, for for the best guns. The best guns are what they call a gas blowback gun, and these function like you know, quote unquote, again, a real gun. Green gas sells for about twenty one dollars a pound, and it lasts a while. But you know, a pound of compressed air is only so much. The thing is, green gas is actually propane. Yeah, the same propane in your grill. It doesn't smell like propane because they put some chemical additives in it to keep it from smelling like propane. In the end, it's propane. And it's completely safe to shoot out of your gun. And you can get a couple of the one-pound uh, propane containers at Walmart uh, for about $10 for a twin pack. So $5 a pound uh, versus $21 a pound for green gas. It does the same thing. That's what this little thing does. So, you know... In a couple cans, it pays for itself. And I like things that pay for themselves. It's good for our financial health, right? So the way this thing works is you put a little squirt of silicon uh, oil in it, screw it onto your uh, your gas can, and fill up your magazines for your guns. And, again, save money and have a lot of fun. Really recommend you guys with kids that want to start teaching about guns and gun safety, Airsoft is the best way to do it. Not only do they enjoy it, not only do they get the real-world skills and the muscle memory, not only do they get real-time feedback, and not only can you teach them safety, and you should teach safety with these things as though they're real guns. But since they're not, and you know they're not, you, the instructor, you, the teacher, are more relaxed, and relaxed teachers do better with their students. Check it out. Mad Bull Propane Adapter for Airsoft Gas Blowback Guns. And you can always support the show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Um, song of the day is, is kind of an interesting one for today. Like It's amazing how like these songs often uh, fit with the subject matter today. Uh, kind of fits really good with the, uh, with the item of the day and the concept of guns. It's Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. But 
I, I think like one of the big things that gets in the way of, of people's emotional health and their financial health, etc., is on focusing on others and someone ripped me off, right? Someone took my idea or whatever. That's, let's lose their language. But there's actually a story in this song that, that, that shows that perfectly. Um, Another One Bites the Dust is one of those songs that, as John Adams said when he said it to me, if you listen to the first three notes, dun-dun-dun-dun, you're like, oh, it's a, I, I know what that is. What if I told you there's another song that sounds almost exactly like that? It's a little bit different in the tempo, or not really the tempo, it's a little bit different in the pitch, and it's, it's, it's more a disco song, even though I think a lot of people would see kind of Queen fitting into that, that space really well. Yeah, it's called Good Times by, by, by Chic. Remember, these are our times, right? Remember that? Remember that? Yeah. Let me, let me do this for you. I'm going to play for you right now uh, just a couple seconds of another one by Sedus at the beginning. And then I'm gonna, I'll put a pause in it so they don't run right together. And I'll play you a couple seconds of Good Times by Sheik. Interesting, you know. Remember, I said today that like we have things in history, major things that occurred in history, where like two people invented almost the same thing at the same time because it was an idea that was ready to come. That doesn't actually apply here. Um, one of these people was influenced by the other, but it wasn't in any way a ripoff at all, not even a little bit. the 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 bassist for Queen uh, did some studio recording with Chic and heard this song and used it as influence with with the rest of the band in developing Another One Bites the Dust. So Good Times came out about a year before Another One Bites the Dust. But do you know what the media did? Do you know what the press did? They claimed that Sheik ripped off Queen because they didn't believe that Basically, a bunch of R&B black artists had come up with this. It had to be the, the rock band Queen that did. Seriously. And there's a lesson in that. There's a lesson in that because do you control what the media does? No. But you can control how you react to it. And whether you just take it and say, okay, they said it so it must be true, or whether you can improve your educational health, by finding out the facts for yourself. Wouldn't have been really hard to figure that one out, would it? Well, I mean, because just use logical processes here. It sounds like uh, they, I mean, you heard the two the two beats together, right? Dun, 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 dun. That sounds like one ripped off the other. Well, they claim that A ripped off B. Well, which one came out first? Oh, this one came out. If anybody ripped anybody off, then B ripped off A in this instance. But in this instance, it was actually collaboration and inspiration. People working together, and no one was bitter over it. You know, it wasn't like it wasn't like the the, the guys from Chic are like, "Hey, you ripped us off." It was like, "Hey, that's really cool." Social health, just saying. Anyway, in spite of all this, awesome freaking song. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Another one bust the dust. Ow! Another one bust the dust. Hey, hey! Another one. Bust- 